It's time for the Chip Race. Hello and welcome to the Chip Race, the stable genius of poker podcasts. I'm David Lappin, alongside Darrow Kearney, and we are brought to you in association with our sponsor, Unibet Poker, who have announced that they will be in the Irish market from February 14th. This week is our Season 4 finale, starring none other than four-time bracelet winner, 2014 WSOP Player of the Year, George Danzer. We'll also be catching up with poker player, writer and all-round mouthy bint Kat Arnsby. Diva joins Dara for some strategy, discussing a hand from her recent Aussie Millions preliminary. Ian retakes his seat at the news desk, but first... Triple Crowns. Well, a lot is rightly made of live Triple Crowns. You have to win a WPT, an EPT and a World Series of Poker bracelets. Uh, I remember Gavin Griffin winning the first one. I think it was sometime in the mid-2000s. Past guest Jake Cody was the youngest to get one. And more recently, of course, another past guest, Neil Farrell, completed his hat-trick. These days, there are reasonable arguments for the other tours to count. Uh, Maybe in the future, people will be talking about quadruple or quintuple crowns. But for this piece, however, I want to turn uh, attention to online triple crowns. Dara, you recently completed your seventh and almost followed it up with uh, your eighth, I think, the following week. What is an online triple crown? And given that they are a pocket fives creation, a ranking site that uses a questionable algorithm that doesn't factor in profitability, how seriously should we take them? Uh, well, to explain what it is currently, like it's changed down the years as obviously online poker has changed, more sites have come on stream and so on. So that I think in the early days, uh, all you needed to do was come top 10 in three tournaments on the same day. Uh, but, but back then, obviously, there were far less sites, far less tournaments. So I guess coming top three at a time where maybe there was only 20 tournaments a night online uh, was a bigger deal. These days, you have to win there's a number of qualifications you have to win three tournaments uh, on three different sites um over a seven day period and each of the tournaments must have at least 100 runners um uh so that that's that's the current requirement which i think has been there since probably around well it's been there four or five years for sure anyway that's that's been the requirement you do play across all the networks though dara you, you probably play on six or seven sites i know and, uh, and, and and meeting that qualification point uh, was certainly easier back in, say, 2009, 2010, even 11 and 12. These days, not so much. And there has been a downtrend in the number of pocket fives, triple crowns achieved by people. And uh, and I guess given that climate, all the more impressive that you've, you've just binked your sevens. Just looking at the numbers now of winners, back in 2013, um, 208 people won triple crowns that year on pocket fives the following year it came down to 138 and then it declined every single year since then and last year uh, there were only 27 winners uh, all year and some of them were multiple winners so they weren't even like 27 individual people because uh, it's hard there, there are less tournaments that qualify these days um, like a lot of the networks now only have one or two tournaments a night maybe that that satisfy the 10k prize pool 100 uh, runner or more fields so getting the three different sites is kind of the challenge these days well i know of course and i'm sure most of you out there know uh, another past guest of ours chris mormon is king of these triple crowns i think he has 27 28 something like that uh, your seven puts you fairly high up in the list, though it's fair to say. Yeah, Chris has Chris has twenty six, which which puts him well on top, and uh, he's five ahead of Poker Kaiser. But then there's a there's a, a drop back of ten to, to to the guy with the third most Belabaxi, the the Hungarian. Um, I have seven. There are only six players who have more than seven. Um, so like someone like Chris has absolutely crushed it, and I think 
Chris would probably admit himself that he has sort of made it made it a an objective when he has a chance to get one to go for it and I I certainly do the same I use it as a kind of a motivating tool if I win a tournament I may, I may just start thinking about oh maybe I can win two more tournaments this week and, and get another triple crown I only found out about triple crowns a few years ago uh, when our, our good friend John O'Croot told me that he wanted to be the first Irish player uh, to, to have a triple crown and of course uh, being the good friend and total bastard that I am, I immediately thought, no, I, I, I want to beat you to it. So, uh, so, so I, I think I was the first Irish player to win a triple crown. Um, and while it's gotten harder, it's, I have, I think, I, I, I got one this year and last year as well. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's still possible, but you do probably have to sort of make an artificial target of going for it. Well, I like how you sort of put it. I guess I am a bit sceptical of pocket fives and maybe I am a cynic who uh, questions their motivation. But of course, the, the best way to kind of handle this or deal with these situations is to use it as the motivational tool that you described. Uh, we can all do it a little kick up the arse from time to time. I know sometimes when I sit down at my computer, the last thing I want to do is grind. But, you know, you have to be professional. You have to sort of uh, motivate yourself somehow. And of course, if you do get one bink, um, you know, and then get the second bink within two or three days, you know, there's a real chance of getting one. Yeah, for sure. Um, in fact, I remember our other friend Espen, I think, actually won two or three in the, in the same week, which was actually his first week as a professional. Um, and the, those two things are probably not unrelated in, in that he was at his most motivated at, at that time. Like online poker can be an incredibly boring, repetitive thing if you're just doing the same thing every night and all you're thinking about is your hourly rate of 60 bucks an hour or whatever it is. And I just want to make this uh, over the year. Uh, having some way of breaking that up um, is, is is definitely a good thing. Well, there you go, guys. Triple crowns. Obviously, the live triple crown will always have that sort of additional prestige. You're usually talking about 100k plus scores, maybe scores in the in the millions occasionally. These online triple crowns, much more modest, but still very tasty scores. And if you can uh, notch one or two of them up every year, you're certainly on the way to a very profitable year at the tables. <laughs> We are joined once again by one of my favourite people in poker. Uh, her name is Kat Arnsby. She writes a fantastic blog, The Poker Baffer, as she is better known uh, on the Twitter sphere. Uh, Kat, welcome back to the show. I, I assume there's going to be a hostile interview. I know Darren and I have been prepping for one, so... Right, OK, well, uh, thanks for having me back. I don't, I don't think it needs to be hostile, David. No. You just uh, behave yourself. I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> well, look, we wanted to talk to you about two uh, kind of topics, if you like. Uh, the first of which, or actually both of which have appeared in recent blogs of yours, but the first of which uh, involves GTO, something uh, Dara has put a lot of time into studying. Obviously, he, he works with the PO solvers. Um, I do a lot of time asking Dara what, you know, <laughs> outcomes occurred, so I don't have to do any of the work, but he, like, shares some of the, the knowledge. Um, but no, on a serious point, though, you you have a particular, or at least you once had a particular opinion of GTO, and, and it's sort of changing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what happens with research. Like, uh, initially, I was just so sick of the phrase GTO. I mean, it, it was, was everywhere. You look on every micro forum, every muscle-bound Mary on poker vlogs with his vest tops was bleating on about GTO this, GTO life, GTO the fucking other. Do you know what I mean? It was all you heard. And I just started to form the opinion that it was some mass troll where these high-stakes pros or serious poker players were having a joke at the expense of the rest of us and laughing every time some micro-player like me said, oh, well, I played this $2 NL hand in perfect GTO style. They were just laughing at us and going, ha, 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 they've taken the bait, you know, they followed like sheep every little speck of gold dust that falls out of our hallowed mouths. Um, <laughs> 
yeah, and I just I just thought, no, fuck you guys. I'm going to prove that this is just lies because poker is not chess, you know. And I I'd come across GTO um, in reference to chess, in reference to Connect Four, which I'm big a big Connect Four player, have been for years, love it. Um, so I'd come across the theories, and I just thought, well, you can't apply these theories to poker because there just isn't the information. Poker is obviously a game of incomplete information, and and the the games that game theory has solved are games of complete information. So you know exactly um, the outcomes as well as every past move and every possible combination. Um, and it just led to me looking into it. I, I have I had to do some research because I couldn't form an articulate argument against these pros. My argument was basically, shut up, I don't understand, fuck you. And that's, you know, it wasn't really a functional argument. So I had to do some research. Um, and it, it resulted in a little bit of a swing. I mean, I still have trouble myself understanding exactly how GTO theories can be applied to, to poker. Um, in totality and I think most people have like I, th I feel like anyone who genuinely studies um, game theory uh, and is trying to apply that to poker they always have questions like they're never certain you know you you fire out one hand and their first their first response is a massive series of questions whereas the the experts in inverted commas they don't have any questions they're like oh this is definitely the GTO way this is how you should have played it e everything else is wrong and there's no there's no question so that was the first point that interested me where someone like Dara uh, you ask him something and he responds with what was this when was this how did this rather than that was right or that was wrong straight away so well before we get on to your second point on on that journey that you went on Dara connect for or chess which one which one is it in poker um, well, just to, to, to come back to the point of incomplete information, uh, like I, I think there's a bit of a misinterpretation sometimes of that phrase. Like poker's miss is a game of incomplete information in the sense that unlike chess, you don't know exactly what your opponent has done, or like you don't know what they're holding, what position, what the what the current position is. For example, um, rock paper scissors has a game theory optimal solution as well, and and that's that's a game of no information. The only thing you know is that the guy is going to pick one of the three, but you have no idea which one he's going to pick. Uh, so you actually know nothing about the guy. You don't know necessarily know anything about his tendencies, but yet you can still use game theory to sort of like come up with a solution where whereby you can't be beat. And I think that's basically what poker is striving for. Now that said, cat's right. Like game theory is very limited uh, in, in in terms of application to poker. First of all, the game will never be solved in the sense that there are so many different what's known as game states in. Um, in game theory, which in poker means like there are so many different stack sizes, so many different possible bet sizes, so many different card combinations you can have, so many different card combinations the other guy can have, that the actual number of combinations uh, is, is, is more than the number of atoms in the universe. So even if you like dedicated the entire universe to, be, to being, you know, to storing some sort of game theory optimal solution for poker, you'd actually run out of storage uh, because you just wouldn't have enough atoms to, to, to store it in. So game theory is limited in its application to poker, but it, it is still very important. Well, Cass, on this journey from, uh, you know, these high stakes fuckers are trolling us <laughs> to maybe Dara has a bit of a point and I should look more deeply into it. You know, what was the next phase? You, you talked about two phases. Uh, well, I mean, I think the next phase is to learn enough to actually start applying some of these series. I mean, I'm a micro stakes recreational player, so I don't think I need to be worrying in the immediate future, that my average opponent is is a GTO expert who I need to apply these strategies to. I think it would actually probably cost me money to to try and, and do it that way. I mean, exploitative play at these low stakes for me has to be the right the right approach. 
Um, but there is something very fascinating to me about game theory in all its applications because it's not do people hear game theory and they think, oh, it's just just for games, which, you know, war is a game. So I, I love to kind of look at the different facets of game theory. Um, and as I learn more about it, it's more interesting in a subject in its own right, like separate from poker entirely. But um, yeah, it's not very often I have an opinion swing. You know, I'm quite an opinionated person. I form my opinion. I check a few facts. I go, yeah, that's it. That's the truth. And everyone else is wrong. That's just my sort of nature. So it was it was quite painful for me to have to admit <laughs> to Dara's face. Yeah, he's right. You know, OK, there is an application for game theory in poker and it, it can help you understand the game in a different way. Um, so it's yes, I do believe now it's not a troll. But as as to how, where I finally land on it, I'm not sure yet. I think it's a long journey. I mean, these, this is obviously something Dara's been doing for years, even before anyone called it GTO. He was doing this stuff. So he's had a long journey to get to his understanding. And I guess I'm a long way behind him on on the same track, maybe. Well, the way I like to look at it, or I always kind of thought was the most helpful, is that getting as much knowledge as you can that converges on a kind of a game theory optimal or a Nash equilibrium as it applies in a short stack situation um, and has been kind of popularized, I guess, by Snapshove, but has been, you know, charts that Dara worked out by inference years ago. People like Chris Ferguson, very unpopular man maybe these days, but he did it back in the day. Andy Block, I know, did it. Um, but for me, it was always, it seemed important because it was like learning the steps and then dancing, like, and then uh, improvising with them. So, you, but you had to know the rules before you could, or maybe another example would be like you have to learn the grammar of a language and then you can kind of be creative and playful with that language in a sense for me it always had to be that journey from something that was very safe and secure like game theory optimal and then a, a journey away from that to be exploitative slash exploitable Dara does that make sense to you or is that a kind of a, a rudimentary way to look at it yeah it does make sense I mean you, you mentioned push fold there and that was the first area sort of that, that, that was solved in terms of GTO although we didn't realise we didn't even call it GTO back then when, when, we, when we came up with our charts and what's happened is, is, is more and more areas are becoming uh, open to being solved now because uh, basically what's happened is that with the arrival of the solvers, uh, the software solvers that can that, that can crunch all the numbers, they, they can do stuff at the tick of a button that, that used to take months to work out with spreadsheets. So more and more of that stuff is, is, is now being uh, solved. But I mean, there, there, there isn't there is an upper limit. Like one thing people maybe don't understand is that there is no game theory solution for anything other than um, two player pots. Uh, there will never be a game theory solution for multi-way pots. And, you know, people sometimes think that's an, a limitation of the solvers, uh, holding resources calculator or PO, but it's not. It's just a limitation of game theory uh, that when you have three players, that there, isn't, there, isn't, there are a number of different possible solutions based on what the other players are doing. So therefore, you can't come up with a single uh, Nash equilibrium solution that, that covers all situations. The other thing that's happening is there's still that debate in poker as to whether you should be GTO or exploitable slash exploitative. And that's going to go on. But even exploitable player, exploitative players can still use the tools um, because the tools don't just solve for, for GTO. You can also set the tools up and say, OK, well, this is the GTO solution. But actually, I think my opponent is going to fold more than they should or they're going to call more than they should. So how does that change how I should play? So back in the old days, people would say, oh, well, they're going to fold more, so I'm going to shove more. But they, they couldn't actually quantify how much more they should shove, for example, or if the player is calling too wide, how, how much tighter they have to be but now you can work all that stuff out well 
okay, the guy's supposed to call 10% of hands when I show, but if he calls 20%, then I should show up this range instead. And if he only calls 5%, then this is the range. Um, so even even within the area of exploitability, people are, are, are getting much closer to optimal play. Well, there we have a, a sort of an area where we found some agreement uh, or, or eventual agreement anyway, as you kind of took that journey uh, from sort of maybe feeling like this was a, a concept that maybe was being bandied around or, or, or touted by the high stakes guys to maybe uh, stop the lower stakes players from making as much money as they could. Uh, another area, Darren, I have often debated you on, Cass, uh, <laughs> is, is an area of, uh, of degeneracy oh, and, and, and how, um, you know, it is your moral opinion or ethical position almost that poker players ought to play slots or bingo or blackjack or something else in the casino, live casino, if it's that, online casino, if, it's, uh, if that's where they, 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 they play their games. Um, because at some level, poker doesn't really generate generate enough income or any income for the casino or the house and uh, and is put on as a sort of a gateway or a trojan horse to get people in so really every few dollars you spunk away on the on the wheel or at the blackjack table is in a sense keeping a roof over your head when you're sitting at the poker table um i know darren and i are going to give you grief about this but i'm going to let you have the first the first word on the it. first part well okay well, i mean first of all that's i mean it's not entirely correct what you said there our first arguments on this started because of the incredible show of disappointment from both of you when I mentioned that I had a bit of a bink at a poker table and then I do some money on slots. And and the, the response from you, I mean, you're shaking your head now. You look yeah. like my dad right at this moment. <laughs> you look so disappointed, you know. Um, and that I enjoy playing slots. That's just me. I'm not saying everyone should. I just happen to enjoy it. So I wouldn't expect a negative response. I don't actually think people, poker players, should play slots or roulette or, or any of the other games if they don't enjoy them. No way should you just spunk money on a game that you hate playing. That That's not the argument I'm making at all. I would at least expect poker players to not have the response that you and Dara have to another poker player who says, well, I won a bit of money at the poker table and then I juiced it on the slots because you can give me all the moral crap all you want. What you're basically seeing is, oh no, that's my potential profit leaving the <laughs> poker economy and going in the slot machine. So that's my first, my first issue there. And I think poker players should contribute back. So if they happen to like slots or roulette or blackjack, that's great. They are, they are literally contributing to the mothership and, and keeping the lights turned on and the staff there because that is, is, is inarguable that, that live operators, 100% live operators, only have poker rooms open to feed into the rest of the business. They, they just don't make money. You know, they, they don't. Um, and it's proven. Um, some studies done in Vegas, uh, back end of so 2007, I think the last round were, and they proved that the house can make more money. So even though they could fill their floor space with slot machines, um, and technically have more money-making machines in that space, that actually per unit of space, they make more money if they put over something to poker because it brings in the footfall. So these casinos that didn't have poker rooms or had shut the poker room in favour because some board member who didn't understand gambling had come in and gone, well, why would I have 100 square metres of poker tables when I could fill it with slot machines that are guaranteed to make money so it's proven it makes money for the house and that's why they have it as usual Kate, you're making a very compelling argument here so i'm going to have to bring in darrow carney to, to win me back over to his side quickly <laughs> yeah i think there's there's two things like first of all we're coming at it from a slightly different perspective cat's coming at it from the general sort of poker's part of gambling and gambling is fun for a lot of people and 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 what what's the harm in people spending their money and what they want and that's a that's a perfectly legitimate uh 
viewpoint but like i think we, we're coming from the more professional uh poker player angle and we have seen a lot of friends down the years sort of like fall off the wagon and uh end up end up as problem gamblers because you know they, they hit a bad patch in poker or whatever and 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 end up doing their entire bankroll on the wheel or um at the at the blackjack tables so f- for us it's almost like an occupational hazard that that yeah you go to the casino to play poker because that's where it is but then afterwards they force you to walk to this area with with all of these um distractions and uh like i had, I had a friend a few years ago who uh, went deep in the main event and he he had a big stack and he took a horrendous beat um pretty deep and i sent him a message i i read about the beat on on poker news or whatever and so i sent him a message saying uh, are you okay and he said yeah i've just collected my money now my only decision is black or red <laughs> and he literally took the entire money and lost it at the roulette at, at the roulette table um, well, I mean that was clearly a really bloody stupid decision on his part, though. It is. Oh no, it's a totally stupid. But he, but but, but he's at, he's at a low point in 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 his rationality, um, and you know he's in a very bad place physically to be a casino when you are not thinking rationally. Like my argument would be on the sort of like, well, they need these other things to make money. It's it's for me. It's like if a if, say there's a there's a huge food store and they make most of their money selling Coke and crisps, but then they decide they're going to have like a health food section as well uh, mm-hmm. to, to, to draw in a different type of customer. If I went in to buy the healthy foods, I, I wouldn't feel under any obligation to to to, you know, buy crisps and and uh, Coke as well, just because they're a higher margin. Um, items for them well you might not feel the obligation but if you enjoy the burger and the high fat food and the sugar then why not have it occasionally i mean these horror stories of guys doing their entire bankroll of of cashing deep in the main and spunking on black and red you know i'm i'm very sorry for them but these are guys with with issues that if they weren't in casino, casinos didn't exist. Those issues would translate elsewhere. I mean, you you don't hear people when when I say oh, I, I fancy a glass of wine after a hard day's work. No one says to me, "Oh well, that that's terrible. You shouldn't have a glass of wine because I knew a guy once who was an alcoholic and it ruined his life and he trashed his health and his wife left him." I mean, that is true as well. You know, there are people who have really poor Im- impulse control, and if that's the case, I mean, someone who is banging their entire winnings on red after taking a beat in the main event. That guy was so unlikely to be a lifelong winning poker player anyway. I mean, seriously, is that, that, that is very different from saying I've won 10K and now I'm going to do 500 on the slots because I love to pay slots. So instead of having my one-hour session once a month on payday <clears throat> where I might do 100 euros, now I'm going to have a three-hour session because I've got some extra money. That That is not the same thing. And th- this is one of the... Um, the areas that frustrates me with this argument is it's straight away to the extremes. There, There is a tiny, tiny percentage of people who gamble who then become chronic or problem gamblers, as defined in the UK. It's much, I mean, it's just very small. It's under 1%. And how much uh, uh, how much, should, how much of the profitability of um, online gambling sites comes from problem gamblers compared to people who are, have a more moderate approach? Um, well, it's very small because they're not they're not sustainable customers. But just to to take up on your point about comparing it, say, to to, to problem alcoholics, I think part of my problem is that like when I go into a bar and I see people drinking, I can see lots of happy people. So I so I accept that for most people, alcohol uh, you know adds to their happiness. And yes, there are some problem alcoholics who who, who end up um, and uh, and that's very sad. But but as a whole. There are a lot of benefits to, to, to alcohol being widely available and, and it does seem to make people happy. 
I don't get the same feeling when I walk through a casino, I have to say. I don't see people laughing and falling around having fun or even looking like they're having the best time ever at the slot machines. Uh, you, you just see some of the most miserable people. It, it, it really feels grim to me when I, when I see them. I, I just don't get that same sense of fun. So I don't see that slot machines are providing this wonderful entertainment. I, I accept that you enjoy them and, and there are some people, but when I look at the average slot machine person uh, in Vegas, for example, I don't see somebody who I think is having fun. No, that's fair. I mean, I, I can see where you're coming from there. What I would say is pop round an alcoholic's house at 9am and see how much fun he's having then. Because the, the actual response, the body's response to alcohol may look a certain way, but I mean, actually, that's the drug doing its work. That's how that drug behaves. And I mean, if you look at the psychology of um, frustration and, and how our bodies respond to that, there's actually massively high dopamine hits. Uh, our, neuro, uh, our dopamine neurotransmitter goes batshit when we gamble. And we may not see that. No, it doesn't have um, a, an amphetamine-like response on the body. It doesn't stimulate our nervous system to be more active. In fact, it has the direct opposite effect. It's almost tranquilizing. So when you look at people in front of slot machines, and I'm the same, I see it myself. Like I actually sometimes have drool on my chin like you know I've gone into such <laughs> such a sort of um trance-like state with these things so uh, you I mean you could judge different different drugs but what we're talking about is a naturally produced drug and that's part of why we as humans love to gamble and not just with money in casinos on on lots of things we gamble with our lives when we jump out of airplanes you know we we, we do a lot of things that take risks for reward. That is, is an inherent part of our behavior. And we could say that to sit in front of a slot machine is low use of those highly developed, evolved skills. But that argument, we have to then open that argument up to a really why we can't just focus that on gambling and say, oh, well, if you gamble, you're not using all your evolutionary benefits. You're a waste of space. Because let's take a look at monkey men watching football. I mean, that to me is the most mindless. I would honestly rather stare at a wall for two hours than watch a football match. So watch cricket instead. Oh, dear, dear God. I mean, this is it. This is sport. You know, I was an exceptional Yeah, people at cricket look like a... they're having an amazing time. It's so boring. And yet people people love it. They get a buzz out of watching that. It's not my bag. I, I don't. So I think if we get in, we're getting into a very dangerous area when we start to make value judgments on what people enjoy and, mm. and, and sort of saying, well, I don't like that. So I'm going to go out of my way to, to point out how crap your choice of wasting time is, you know, and that is essentially what we're doing, not to get too miserable and nihilistic, but we are just wasting time till we die. So if I choose to do that on a slot machine and you choose to do it watching football or for God's sake, Dara, I mean, you run for 24 hours. That is the most insane thing I've ever heard. I, I cannot think of how your mind functions it's great crack, for 24 though. hours of just running. <laughs> yeah but it is good it is good fun um and the, you 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 end up having a better quality of life i think in other areas than if you spend 24 hours in front of a slot machine possibly but you are basically getting as high as fuck on dopamine oh for sure. That, for sure you are yeah i wouldn't you are loving your body's natural, natural drug. drug i wouldn't argue with you with you, with you there yeah no i mean I, I i i have an obsessive personality so i try to channel my obsessions towards stuff that won't do me harm um but yeah i, I accept your point that we are we're, we're all slaves of our neurochemical receptors 
Well, it has been utterly fascinating sort of refereeing or, or pretty much being on the sidelines of what has been a fascinating discussion He's between Dara <laughs> and Kat. Uh, I do want to bring this conversation full circle just to tie it up at some level and say that I do I do appreciate where you're coming from, Kat, because I do think you you have maybe uh, maybe a broader um, sort of perspective on it than Dara and I. As, as I've always said, um, uh, as well as Dara, I think we come from that kind of narrower, this is our job. And actually, we have a job in a kind of an industry or an area where the vast majority of people aren't working, per se. They are expending recreational hours. So I think really in that lies the, the, the crux of, of how we see it differently. And I, and I think you've both made fantastic points to either side. And I guess it's up to you, the viewer. What do you think out there, guys? Uh, I'd love to hear some feedback on this piece. It's been fascinating. GTO at the beginning, degenerate gambling, <laughs> helping the ultimately helping the poker economy. Uh, let us know what you think. Thank you very much, Kat, for joining us again. Thank you for having me. Let's go. It's time for Ian Simpson with the news. Oh, here's the news. Don't touch that dial. Uh, poker Twitter was buzzing over the weekend as a feud played out between prominent US player and coach Ryan LaPlante and one of our former guests, player, coach and bit B staking founder Patrick Leonard. Uh, it does look like the, the words on the subject of coaching has come to the end with pads tweeting out on Monday morning. Uh, and I'm quoting here, spoke to Ryan for the last two hours on Skype. We are very different yet very similar. Both love poker. Both say things we maybe shouldn't. Both regret things from the past. Apologies for hurting your feelings and thanks for helping me see things from a clearer perspective. Um, so yeah, if you want to check out the drama there, if you look at at uh, plenopads and at potentialLMN on Twitter, uh, you can see what all the fuss was about. Uh, did you follow that story, uh, David? I did kind of. Daryl Carney told me there about two mornings ago, check out the, the scrap that's starting on Twitter. And of course, being the gossip monger that I am, I, I straight away uh, got my phone out and, and checked it out. It, it did seem like the lads were sort of arguing. I think a big B in Patrick Leonard's bonnet is sort of the lack of regulation when it comes to coaching. People can obviously be scamming people. Um, and I think he feels like he he wants to be the sheriff in town. Now, with Ryan, I don't know if he chose the greatest target to maybe make some of his points. And uh, the, the two of them certainly got into a, a bit of a fisticuffs over it virtually. But uh, it's good to see, at least in the end, that they seem to have kissed and made up. Yeah, absolutely. It, it seems silly that they ended up arguing when they're both sort of legit coaches. <laughs> when, they're, when they're arguing about sort of supposed scam coaching. Uh, it seems silly that... Um, Ryan being such a good coach and a you know a legit guy got caught up in that somehow. Sure. Well, look, the chip race obviously never won to be getting down in the gutter with uh, salacious gossip. Instantly, I booked Ryan Laplante on the show for next season, so you know we'll hopefully get more out of him then. <laughs> Excellent. Um, moving on to shit that I don't understand. Uh, there's some breaking news for the cryptocurrency and poker fans as cryptocurrency-based online poker room Coin Poker. Launched back in mid-November, just went live with stage one of its ICO. Um, do you know much about cryptocurrency? It feels like everyone's making fucking millions of pounds and I'm sat here grinding bull tournaments trying to figure out what exactly a Bitcoin is. <laughs> well, even though I only know a little bit about it, I think I probably know more than a lot of people who have made millions off it. But, uh, but that's because <laughs> when you've got a bull market like it's been for the last few years, I think you could be throwing darts at the wall and make money. But uh, no, in fairness, there's an interesting technology there, obviously, with the blockchain, uh, different 
companies, different coins are trying to do different things in that space. It's definitely an interesting way for people to invest their money right now. Is it really a currency? Well, it's not behaving like a currency at this moment, but at some point it may start behaving more like a currency. At the moment, it's more like a commodity and people are heavily invested. I'm very much reminded of the tech boom back in early 2000, kind of 98, 99, 2000. Uh, that ended in tears for people. I hope it doesn't end in tears for all the, um, the crypto investors. Certainly the poker world will collapse utterly. Uh, I'll probably be playing <laughs> high rollers when I show up to a 300 comp. Uh, <laughs> uh, such will the nature of the, uh, the the ecology at that point. So no, fingers crossed those guys don't do well. But actually, as you mentioned, crypto poker crossover, all that kind of thing, uh, and, and Coinbase, as you mentioned there. Uh, in other crypto news, last weekend's Univertso in Mauritius, run by our good friend Alex Henry, was accepting buy-ins in the form of cryptocurrency. I also read on Twitter today that former guest Tom Hall woke up at 7 a.m. this morning to play an Ethereum free roll online. So it's fair to say that the poker world uh, have been one of the most open to crypto and I'm sure we'll be seeing more of these crossovers in the near future. Absolutely. Um, if you want a bit more information on that, um, former guest Jason Galazza wrote a nice article on poker news all about it. So definitely have a, have a, have a look on poker news for that. Moving on, the biggest news of late has to be Maria Lampropoulos. She's made her second Seven figure score within six months. Seven figures means million. It's insane. Maria won the Party Poker Millions in April last year for a cool million pounds sterling. And just last week followed that up with winning the PCA 10K for just over a million dollars. Uh, so massive congratulations to her. I've, I've got massive envy over, <laughs> over this. Uh, Maria is a massive champion for, and a fantastic role model for, for the ladies of poker. So I'm, I'm equal parts jealous and, and happy about these results. Uh, David, how did she do it? I'm, I was pleased to bink an Irish Open package last night just to, just to break even on my abysmal Sunday. And she's winning millions and millions of bucks. How did she do it? I think she's just a lot better than us. Yeah, that might be it, yeah. Short and sweet answer there, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair um it's it's so hard like the high rollers obviously produce million quid scores for people but to, to pull off two million quid scores in five or 10k events and just main events means you have to basically outlast big fields of the best players in the world it is an astonishing performance um i'm not sure we'll see um a sort of back-to-back -back like it to be honest um it's just so rare in the poker world i know people get streaky from time to time but it's a, an incredible outlier, but she's obviously an incredible player too. He, yeah, I mean, you say that, and I'm, I'm, I just feel like within the next year, she's going to do it again. She's going she's gonna to bink another one of the millions or something silly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, massive congratulations to Maria. Well, before you go, Eni, I just wanted to give a shout out to legend of Irish poker, Willow Connolly, who won the 2017 Irish Poker Series leaderboard. The award ceremony was held last week in the Crown Plaza Blanchardstown, hosted by our former guest, Nick O'Hara. And it sounds like a great night was had by all. So congrats to Willow there. She's a bit of a champion of the old school. She's obviously in the new school these days as well. Um, also, a quick follow-up last week at the time of recording the news. We mentioned that uh, Matthias Mulhausen, two-time Unibet Open champion, uh, was at the final table. Or actually, he was just on the cusp of the final table in Mazagan. He ultimately finished fifth for a pretty tidy score. And when last I saw him, he was on his way to the WSOP circuit event in Marrakesh to reinvest the spoils. Very nice. Congratulations to that man. Yeah, no, great performance there. But listen, Eni, thank you so much for bringing us the news this week. It was good to have you back. We enjoyed Ranu last week, but we missed you at the same time. Oh, I'm glad you missed me. That means I'm not fired, right? Not for never fired. Eni will never not be fi fired. Never fired? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna quote you on that because like everyone keeps threatening to fire me. Yeah, 
Well, <laughs> one see, day. I have to say you'll never be fired. So if you're fired, you don't think I'm to blame. Uh, you see, I'll, I, I see through that. I know you'll have a, an underhand. I think you have to be more scared when people say you're definitely not fired, actually. I think that's a much more worrying place to be. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, I got to go. I've got a grind to do, buddy. So thank you very much for that. And to see you all next time. See you later, Amy. For this week's strategy column, I'm joined again by Diver. We managed to kick David out of the box again. Uh, Diva is currently in Australia, <laughs> where she's going to be playing the Aussie Millions. And Diva Hi just, guys, and greetings from Sydney. <laughs> uh, Diva just played her first tournament in Australia and went deep, so well done Diva. Um, and you. we're going to talk about the very first hand she played in the tournament, I believe. Can you tell us about the hand, Diva? Yeah, so I sat down at the table and uh, we're starting with 10,000 chips and the blinds are 5,100. And literally 15 minutes in, um, I pick up kings, and the action before that goes, the guy who's also got a starting stack, he makes a 350 under the gun, um, mid-position calls, and um, in a hijack with pocket kings, and I decide to raise it up, uh, and make it 1300, and uh, UTG guy calls, and the middle-position guy folds. The flop comes nine deuce deuce with two clubs, and we don't have a club in our hand. Okay, so first of all, uh, pre-flop, he makes quite a big raise under the gun, three and a half X. Um, there's a call, uh, and, and you squeeze, um, as I think you should, with kings. What, what other hands would you squeeze in this spot? Uh, Pair-wise, I think, uh, considering his first hand of the game, and all of us so quite deep, and I don't have any information of the players at the table. I think I'd be more playing more cautiously, so I, I think I'd probably squeeze Queen's plus, uh, Ace-King. Uh, I don't think there would be any bluffs in my range at that point, so early in the game. Yeah, I mean, we sometimes talk about the need to have bluffs, but very first hand of a, of a tournament against players we know nothing about and who know nothing about us, uh, we, don't, we don't need to be balanced, so it's obviously fine to switch to an exploitative strategy of um, just squeezing value. So when he calls, what's your perception of his range? Uh, first of all, my, my my perception would be that some of the stronger hands like aces and kings are probably gone from the range now because he he presumably would um, four bet those. Um, so the question is, what are the sort of strong but not brilliant hands that he would he he would just call with? Um, well, looking at the guy and kind of like making a profile about him. First of all, he was Asian in his 40s, Asian guy, and he couldn't shuffle the chips. So I could tell straight away he wasn't very experienced. And the fact that he just snapped cold, didn't think about the hand, I thought he's more on the looser side as well, rather than being more solid and tight. Uh, so I think based on that fact, I think his range was much wider than usually people calling in that spot on the gun. So I would probably uh, allocate him most of the pairs. Um, ace, ace, uh, probably all ace five suited plus, uh, ace ten plus, uh, broad base suited hands, king, queen, queen, jack suited, jack ten possibly. That's probably as low as it goes. Maybe not jack ten, queen, jack suited. Yeah, so that's that's super wide. I mean, that 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 range very much falls into the don't try this at home category because. Thirteen percent of thirteen percent of the, <laughs> of the stocks are, stacks have gone in pre-flop, and 
a lot of those hands are basically set mining um, or they're kind of spec speculative type hands that are looking to flop a flush draw, uh, which is only going to happen 10% of the time. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, he should be folding most of those hands, but I think you're right. I think uh, random inexperienced live players, there, any any kind of decent hand, they'll just want to continue with. I think also another interesting uh, point is like, uh, when we were chatting before at the table, and I think people had an perception of me as just being you know on holiday like a, a like a blonde girl sitting at the table she can't really play so i think it's another fact to take into consideration that he was just calling much wider thinking you know he can outplay me probably a full swap and put max pressure yeah yeah for sure so when the flop comes nine nine two with uh two clubs and his his lead is very um how do i put this kindly unorthodox he bet uh 2700 i think into 3100 it's difficult yeah. to think of any hand that he should do this with um and in certainly in, ter in terms of his overall range i mean he should basically always be checking here so when he bets it's kind of confusing so what sort of range do you put him on uh when, when he leads for 2700 yeah so then i saw the flop i was like okay that's pretty good flop for me and then suddenly he just kind of like it. I was like, wow, this is interesting. So yeah, and um, I was thinking basically he is repping an overpair, um, anything tens plus. Uh, I think it's well, obviously unlikely he's betting under pair to nines. He could bet ace nine as well. So basically nine, ace nine suited and all the pocket pairs above and uh, a not clutch draw as well. I thought he's not doing that with full house or trips. Um, he wouldn't bet that much. He would want to keep him in the pot. So it looked more like uh, drawing hand or overpair for value. Yeah, uh, like it's difficult to. He he certainly shouldn't be doing this with an overpair because if he if he has an overpair, like the only hand that you might fold in, in your range is Ace King, and he has such good equity against Ace King that he doesn't really wanted to fold at this point he should check and get a continuation bet for from you at least and then the pairs that are bigger than tens are not going to fold to this bet size anyway so um the bet is a little bit pointless if he has an over pair if he has a flush draw i guess it kind of makes sense because if he gets ace king to fold that's great um because yeah. he, he 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 cleans up his equity at this point so you have kings obviously so we're never, we're never folding so the question is now do we uh do we just call um and then we we'll, we will have 40% of our stack in or do we shove so what what was your thinking uh on those two options so yeah my think at the time obviously uh, was like i'm never folding first of all uh, secondly is like well what is my best option here so um i elected to call just flat because i was thinking um keeping all the pairs in which would possibly fold if I was to shove so small pocket pairs like tens or jacks you know some some of the players would fold that because but me by shoving at this stage of the tournament I think I represent premium hands and um, I thought my best way to get the rest of the chips in is if a brick card comes in the turn and he's just probably going to get it in anyway. In my, in my mind, it's very, very close on the flop there between between calling and raising. The, the advantage of calling is we keep his range wider and we can um, get some hands in on the turn that might fold now. But the advantage of 
shoving is that we deny equity to some some of his hands, particularly the bluffing part of his range, the ASX clubs, or if he calls, then that's fine as well because uh, we we do have 60% equity. Yeah, and another thing that crossed my mind as well was like, because I got two kings, obviously, like, it's, you know, I wasn't too worried about king on the turn, so obviously I was more worried about ace uh, in terms of, you know, like him making a big fold on the turn. So the fact that I had kings, I, I, I thought that's why I felt like calling is... is better option at the time but like listening to you now i totally see you know like there's definitely like solid reasons for shoving there you know and for denying equity and uh, and probably getting called by you know queens and jacks anyway sure i think a good way to split our range here given that that we think the entire bluffing part of his range is basically flush draws um it's, it's difficult to imagine there's any other hand he's bluffing with or semi-bluffing with is that if, if we have the king of clubs uh then we should um shove because we're blocking a lot of his flush draws um and and and, and therefore it's more likely he, he does have a hand like jacks or tens rather than um two clubs in his hand and if we don't have the king of clubs like you didn't in this case then calling is better because it's it, it's more likely he is on a bluff or a semi bluff with a, a a flush draw okay how i mean in terms of the flush draw itself like should i be considering about how well, I guess what how big the part of folding consideration should I take into account when calling and if club shows up on the turn that's another benefit of calling I guess if you call and a club comes on the turn and he shoves yeah um, yeah yeah that's a really good question I think at that stage because like, that crossed my mind as well you know I thought I thought if the club comes I could actually possibly consider folding yeah I think I think you could for sure because if we if we think about his flop range um, of being just pairs above the nine but below kings mostly uh, so queens jacks yeah. tens specifically and then flush draws and and then a club comes on the on the turn it, it, it'd be a very bizarre line for him to just now shove his queens jacks or tens uh, yeah, and if he did shove them, he probably has a club in his hand, so he has some equity. So uh, against a range that is only made flushes and flush draws, um, I think I think we would have to fold the turn. Yeah, if a club came. Yeah, so I guess there are like at the time I thought it's two good reasons for just flatting, like keeping him in the hand with the worst hand and getting the rest of the chips on the turn and also getting away if you know. The club comes and I can work easily with the bigs. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think that makes sense. On the flop, I just flatted, and the turn came ten of hard, and he he shoved. Yeah. Okay. So now, so, so now we we obviously have to call. Um, we we were basically when we call the flop, we're hoping to see a blank turn. I've I've actually plugged the uh, the ranges into Pio, and in terms of the decision on the flop, uh, Pio splits the range. Interestingly. When when he when he does this weird bet size, the only hand that up Pio obviously folds is Ace King, uh, because that has uh, that has nothing. But it doesn't always fold Ace King. It's it's it sometimes raises it as a bluff. Um, wow, really? Yeah, that's interesting. And in terms of the pairs, Pio calls with the aces half the time and raises half the time. It usually raises with queens, and it nearly always raises kings. And I think the reason why it does that is with aces, we're not worried about an ace coming on the turn. But with kings or queens, we are. 
in in addition to the clubs so there are more bad cards for us on the turn so P, P, with 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 king's PO will will raise eighty five percent of the time and call only fifteen percent of the time. If it doesn't have the king of clubs, it will always raise. But if it has the king of clubs, it will sometimes call, and that's for the reason that I gave. When when we don't have the king of clubs, he can have the king of clubs, and therefore he has more yeah. flush draws in his range. So so we want to raise to to deny equity to those. But when we have the king of clubs, he has less flush draws so therefore we, we, we can call uh, some more often um, because he has queens jacks tens more often so he shoved the 10 he shoved uh, the pot was yeah 5800 and shoved the rest of the chips yeah and uh, yeah I just called and he had ace three of clubs and uh, we hold and I doubled the first hand of the game <laughs> Okay, and if we if we look back at his play now, first of all, uh, raising a three of clubs to three hundred and fifty under the gun, very not, loose, not recommended. very loose, not <laughs> recommended, but you know, not terrible. If you want to play super loose, then a hand like a three suited, I guess, goes into the raising range. Just the the sizing is kind of weird. Yeah, inflating the pot with like terrible hands. If you're going to raise a a wide range of hands from early position, you should use a small sizing um, because most of your range is just too weak. Then when we get squeezed, we should just be folding the ace-three suited. Um, I mean, occasionally against super wild players, we can turn it into a four-bet bluff. Um, definitely not first hand of the tournament uh, <laughs> against a blonde lady on holidays. Um, and then when the flop comes down and we flop a flush draw, I mean, there is some... We should, take a three, we should take a three card. Yeah, there is some argument for betting uh, if we can tr if we can get ace-king to fold sometimes. But um, to be honest, uh, not, not really strong enough argument. We, we are kind of committing ourselves with just a flush draw. Um, on a paired board as well, incidentally. So like sometimes uh, our opponent's going to make a house. Um, so yeah, definitely, definitely not not the type of play that you that you should try at home. So yeah, it was it was it was a good start, and uh, I ended up finishing in fifteenth place. And yeah, a good start to two thousand eighteen. Very a good start. Warm up before Ozemelian. Nice. Okay. Thanks, Tyba. <laughs> Thank you. We are joined now by the twenty fourteen WSOP Player of the Year. He's got four bracelets, two W Coupe titles, four Scoop titles, and over two point seven million in live earnings. The man they call Tricky Scarfy. He's also, I think, got the best hair in poker. He is, of course, my good friend, George Danzer. George, welcome to the show. Yeah, hello. Nice to be here. George, it's so nice to have you on. Darren and I have been racking our brains for somebody who could possibly uh, follow Phil Helmet. And after Phil Ivey wouldn't take any of our calls, I thought it had to be you. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, maybe on the hair I got the advantage over Phil Ivey these days, but... Uh... <laughs> Nice that you thought of me for such an important task. Indeed. Well, look, long before I ever met you, I, of course, watched you, like I think many did, uh, taking all those brutal beats to that clown Dimitri Nobles at the 2006 World Series main. Um, after busting, I remember you left pretty upset that day, but came back a little later and shook hands with him. It's a pretty cool response from someone who was just 23 years of age at the time. What was going through your head as you stormed away and how quickly did you decide to come back? I was already, when I was playing online and got bad beats, I was always trying to force myself to just take it and think about uh, the next step and, and forget it as quickly as possible. Because if you, if you let the instincts kick in at the table, that's when you, when you start sucking. So uh, it, it, in that moment, I remember that first the instincts kick in and you get angry because you, 
you think that uh, the other guy did something wrong and you were right and you should have won. And I jumped up and ran through the room. And then at some point, that, uh, that training kicked in that I always was forcing myself at the, at the online tables. Just take it think about the next step. And that was halfway through the room when I remembered it. It took a little longer than usually, but uh, at that point I said, no. You know, he did what was he was doing all the time. It, it was not even surprising that he did something like that. I was trying to, to you know, uh, abuse the situation and get him to put the chips in bed. He did it, so why would I be mad, right? It's just the uh, the way the cards fell, the dice uh, ran out at that point. So I just, when that thought came back, I just turned around and, and got up to him and, and gave him a hug and said something like, uh, well played, sir. <laughs> <laughs> and and was, it, was he alarmed when he saw you coming back? Like, <laughs> Do you think you were maybe going to punch him? <laughs> I mean, he looked a little worried for a second when he turned around because he went over to his buddies and went like, that's what I'm talking about, you know, um, and, and uh, was, was giving the high fives and then he turned around and said that I was sprinting from back through the room in his direction. I think shortly it crossed his mind that this crazy European fucker was going to stab him or something. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, George, while you're clearly no slouch at No Limit Hold'em, you're probably best known as a mixed game player. I remember reading a quote from you saying that playing any one game for too long, you feel that your skills plateau. Uh, could you elaborate on that? Um, yeah, it's not that the skills plateau, it's just that the, the rate of learning gets slower. Right, so at the beginning, when you start a new game, you go from having absolutely no clue to having a clue, which, um, let's say in big blinds, uh, mathematical terms, you go from being 100 big blinds per hand loser to maybe 20 big blinds per hand loser, uh, per hand, I'm saying, per 100 hands. <laughs> <laughs> that, I thought you were talking about be... David there. <laughs> <laughs> that was like... <laughs> David's studied skills right there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you improve really fast uh, when you just get some basics, right? And then, but as you work your way forward, at some point, maybe you're a break-even player, when you now try to win against players who are doing the same for like five years, you're not going to get ahead of them, if, even if you're a genius, by uh, just, you know, grinding one hour per day. Now you have to, have to put in the real work. And at that point, you have to think, is it worth it, right? For example, if you do it for No Limit Deuce to 7, and then you have one tournament per year, which is the 10K uh, at the World Series, and this interesting, it probably doesn't make sense to put in four hours a day um, when you're not improving that much anymore. Um, so, yeah. It's it's just that the the rate of learning in comparison to your opponents gets flatter after a while. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, well, going back to the WSOP, uh, I, I guess cut to eight years later after that moment with Dimitri Nobles, and after umpteen close calls at previous series, I know you won your first bracelet, taking down the 10k seven card Raz event for about 300k. That's not exactly a young man's game. Can you talk us through any memories you have of that? Yeah, I must have gotten really lucky for Phil Helmut not to win that because he says he's the best dress player in the world. 
and he has the right age for it too. So that, that, <laughs> there was some some good luck involved in that. Um, Res is a game with high variance, so I think everybody can win that tournament. So, no, really. <laughs> everybody can win a Res tournament. And I think most of the skill in Res comes from not getting tilted. And that, we started off with that, that's one of the things that I always try to implement in my game. To net, not get tilted. And at Res it's probably the most important thing, because the mathematical um, edge in those hands sometimes differ by a lot. There is going to be an 80-20 favorite or maybe even 85-90% favorite, but the betting is fixed and you know pretty much exactly how much you have to pay for 6th and 7th street. And even if you have a very, very tiny chance of winning the pot, often it's correct to stay around. And even if it's incorrect, it's not a huge mistake. It's going to be a small mistake to, you know, chase that uh, 1 in 10 shot. And sometimes you're going to hit it. And the more you try and people are forced in rest, the more people are going to hit it. So when you come into a room of rest tournament players, maybe an hour or two late, you already can feel the hate, you know. There's, <laughs> on every table there is like two players who just hate, not the dealers, not the other players, not the, they hate everything. They hate the room, you know, especially at the Rio, it's not so hard to be just having hate, hating the carpet and the, and the lighting and the temperature and everything. So it's, it's just beautiful when you go in there and you can manage that and stay relaxed, you know, and maybe even get more, the more people start hating, the more you, you relax because you, you can just take it and, and have a mirror and just, uh, you know, giving it all back. <laughs> and, that gives you the edge in the rest tournaments, and and I think that's why I won it. Yeah, that's that sounds like a typical seniors tournament to me. Actually, I hate seniors tournaments for that reason because they're all it's all just grumpy old men complaining about young people, and uh, <laughs> and then like usually for the first twenty minutes everybody likes each other, and then it, pretty quickly it changes and they all hate each other for some reason. Um, that's exactly how rest tournaments work. <laughs> Probably because so many old guys play it. Uh, yeah. so, so you followed that win up with two more victories in the 10K Stud Hilo in Vegas and then the 5K 8 game at the WSOP Asia Pacific event. These results plus two other final tables uh, catapulted you to the top of the 2014 uh, WSOP Player of the Year leaderboard. For a guy who's very good at taking things in his stride, how difficult was it to stay grounded after that? Hmm. After the World Series... It's not so hard for me because I just take time off and go somewhere into the wilderness and uh, don't don't bother with the real world and social contacts. <laughs> so that grounds you pretty quick when all your uh, all your brain does is try to find some water and the path on the map so you survive the next five days. And that's how I usually ground myself after World Series and after winning the. The, the one in Australia when I won the play of the year then it was just partying for a while <laughs> there was no grounding there I was so happy after winning that one that I don't even know what I was doing I was just feeding on the, on the positive emotions that they, that gave me oh, that's wonderful um, 
it was a couple of years later than 2016 and you won your fourth bracelet. Uh, Bink in the 10k stood high low, split eight or better. And as I mentioned at the top, you also had those two W coupes and four scoop titles over the previous six or seven years or whatever it was. From the outside, it looks like it's been all plain sailing for George Danzer. But as we all know, uh, the path of a poker player rarely smooths. Uh, were there ever any really tough times in there? Oh, yeah. <laughs> there were some tough times, especially around uh, 2007 to 2010. Um, after the nobles thing in 2006, uh, it was it took me a while to to get that beat out of the head, and then I actually think I had a stretch of around 30 World Series event without the cash. Um, that's that's never a good feeling. Um, yeah, it was it was really tough in between there, and I had to grind through. I always. Uh, had my, my small plans every year I pick up a new game and just go into my room for a month or two to, to really get into it and then I grind it, prepare for the World Series again and then I get my head smashed in. That was how it worked from 2007 to 2010 and I just, you know, did it the same <laughs> way the next year. Um, uh, there is tough times and you just have to either say, ah, I don't want to do it anymore and quit, or you you grind through it and try to to keep your mind uh, fresh by, by by changing some stuff up. Maybe take a break for one or two months. I did that too, and and then come back. Uh, David and I met you in Hamburg a few years ago, and you told us a fantastic story about a commercial you shot for PokerStars, uh, a commercial which actually never made the air. Could you tell our listeners the story you told us about that shoot? Oh, that was a that was an awesome shoot. <laughs> we all went <laughs> we all all went to South Africa to uh, Kapstadt and had a, a really nice villa there. And uh, the catering the catering was the best. The the guy who also did the catering for uh, Lord of Wars or what's the Nicolas Cage movie? You know that that one. And um, so I was waking up every morning around 7 with some fresh strawberries and the eggs did exactly the right way I asked for the evening before right temperature, everything and then I went up and I just had a, a gin tonic against the mosquitoes maybe and went to the set and just sat around in this beautiful scenery with a with a mountain and a, and a, the dolphins around it was it was like a dream yeah, but but it wasn't so easy as I remember, George. There was the, the, the shoot itself was a little less idyllic. That was that was the the part, you know, where we were sitting around. And sometimes they said, "Okay, it's time to go to the set," and uh, we were shooting one action scene after another. So everybody got killed in that. I'm not, probably spoiling it. If you watch the, the it's a 30 second clip somewhere on YouTube, if you, if you can find it. And everybody gets killed there. And I was the guy with a, with a big gun. So I had a helicopter and they just tell me, yeah, you'd get strapped in there into the helicopter and we're going to shoot some scenes. But they didn't tell me. I had one of those stunt stuntman instructors behind me and the helicopter was open. He was just sitting on the bench and I was strapped in with three little straps and a huge plastic machine gun going out the door of that helicopter and the helicopter pilot was flying wild maneuvers like 
10 meters over the sea, you know, in direction of the house where they were shooting, and the instructor was behind me just shouting, hold on, hold on to the machine gun, because that machine gun was reaching out, and with the wind picking up, it was blowing it to the other way, so if I let go, it would just rip it out. So I was strapped in there, trying to not let the wind rip the machine gun out of the helicopter for 20 minutes, while the pilot was flying maneuvers, and the guy was screaming in my ear, and I couldn't couldn't do anything. My, my legs were burning, my hands were burning, and I, I thought I was going to die if I let go. <laughs> so when we land, I just fall out of the helicopter. They took away the straps. I just fall down, I land on the grass, and there is already one of the medics storming in my direction. It was a little Indian guy, and he went, ah! Always, always happen, always happen. This is uh, this uh, already... Um, Three times helicopter went down, no problem, no problem, I got this, and he opens his bag and has a lot of syringes and stuff, you know, already prepared for me. But nobody told me before that it was going to be something, you know, a wild ride. I thought it was like a tourist helicopter ride I was going to do, and I was shooting some film. Yeah, but I survived it, and I have the the best uh, helicopter flying experience of my life. It was a Huey. The Huey is known for... Um, how do you say it? Uh, bad engineering that's really easy to fix. So the thing is, they, they put it in the air and it's going to drop out of the air very often, this helicopter. But it's really easy to fix. So I think out of all the Hueys they built, only half of them did not crash. <laughs> you can look it up online, I'm not even joking. The Huey is like the, the worst, best helicopter ever built. So yeah, quite the experience there. George, in a, I don't know how we followed that up. In a 2013 Poker Strategy article, you were quoted as saying, uh, I value experiences and memories more than money. Well, aside from that experience you've just described, and of course, drinking $1,000 bottles of wine, which I know you like to do, um, what experiences in your life have been the most memorable? Ah, the birth of my daughter, of course. Uh, that, that was the best one. And uh, yeah, since then, it's a, lo it's a lot of experiences. Uh, Raising, raising a child. Um, it's a little bit different than the old poker and helicopter stories, um, but uh, the adrenaline is similar, and uh, the happy memories are much more frequent. Like every small thing uh, uh, that's new and somehow excites you. So, yeah, probably if if I I want to tell all the all the experience and good stories, we have to extend this interview. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a uh, loose, aggressive, nappy-changing style, or would you be more of a nappiness? Um, it's quite loose, aggressive, because I, I don't like... Because if you let the, the baby decide how the, the changing of the nappies is going to be and how everything is uh, structured, you're going to have a bad time. So you have to work together and there has to be a balance, right? And if you're in the driver's seat, you know, and tell a nice story and um, and do an interactive nappy change, then it's, uh, I feel it's it's uh, way better for the, for the baby too. Else it gets quite passive-aggressive quite quick. And uh, George, a title many of our listeners might not realize you have is that of Poker's Best Ambassador in 2015. Do you have any tips for two undecorated ambassadors? Oh. Hmm. No. <laughs> Just do your thing. 
<laughs> just uh, I, I think a lot of people always uh, look at how actions are gonna be uh, judged by other people instead of you know just acting. Um, maybe that's the the best tip. I, I remember you, you, you talking to you. I think maybe in Malta about uh, when when your daughter was born, and you were saying that you you thought it was it might affect your game. That when you were playing other players online uh, who had babies, you always knew whether the baby was there or not. <laughs> <laughs> It's no joke. It's no joke. You know exactly when one of the players that had a baby, when the baby was screaming or he had to help out or he had to change something or give some food or just was really tilted because of the whole situation. The tempo they were playing, you know, the sit-out rhythm, everything just... Uh, you By the actions and the showdowns and the, and the sit-out, you could picture how the house was looking, you know, what the sounds were in that house and everything. I just, I knew in advance that when I had my baby that I wanted to do it differently. Well, that, well, that brings me kind of to my final question, George. You sort of left the poker scene 12 months ago to pursue your interests, I know, in esports. You own one of those teams. Uh, you actually, I remember you actually educated me in what esports was. You were the first person to, to teach me all about it. Uh, you also are helping build a startup company. Uh, I know you're there in work today, actually. We might have uh, caught some of your colleagues uh, on the fly behind you. Uh, and of course, spend time with your baby daughter, which makes an awful lot of sense. And as you said, do things a bit differently. But do you miss poker? And could you be tempted back? Uh, <laughs> of course I miss poker, especially when the big tournaments are and, and when I see friends tweeting about it and results popping in and then I see people who don't deserve to win the tournaments that only I would deserve to win, you know, that kind of stuff. I want to come back, but um, it still has to wait a little bit. The baby, yeah, still need help with, uh, with uh, eating and putting on clothes, and it's only one year old, so it's not uh, self-sufficient yet, and... Um, I hope I can make it for the for this World Series. I already looked up the schedule. I saw that between the 3rd of June and 11th of June, there is a, an amount, a really good amount of mixed game tournaments that uh, I, I would have a chance still with, even with a little break, with, if I train maybe for one month. So, yeah, if, if that somehow works out, then we could meet again for the, for the World Series this year. Very good. Obviously, that's how Germans do retirement. They don't actually just disappear. Like Fedor retired as well, but he still plays all the high rollers. Um, like with all the the German success, you're probably like the original German that broke through. How do you feel? How do you feel about the whole way the Germans that have come afterwards have gone about it? I think they're in a good place. Um, they're still grinding a lot. <laughs> And trying to improve, I think that's the the most uh, German thing in the in the poker world that uh, they're always working. And um, I always have an eye of if somebody's gonna overtake me in bracelets too. That's 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 the problem. They're all too good. They're gonna catch me pretty soon, and then I have to come back. <laughs>
See, they don't. None of them have that Brazilian Portuguese flair that you have. I think that's the that's the secret combination. Yeah, and and now I just noticed that I I still have to catch helmet some days, so I can't take too long of a break. I know he's old, but uh, still I I have to to be in 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 betting distance to to catch up to, to his bracelet count. Absolutely, I think it's yourself and Dominic sitting on four, so. Hopefully you can you can you can make a charge. Well, George, look, it has been a real pleasure having you on. Darren and I have been so keen ever since we met you the first time in Hamburg. We had such a fun weekend that weekend. Uh, your stories are always uh, entertaining, and uh, the poker world is certainly a less stylish place without you. I can I can assure you of that. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, I hope to to bring the style back soon. <laughs> Thanks so much. George. Thanks, George. The world of music lost another icon last week with the passing of the Cranberry songwriter and frontwoman Dolores O'Riordan. Playing us out tonight is a lesser-known Cranberry song from their 1999 album Bury the Hatchet, with a beautiful composition and, of course, Dolores' trademark mezzo-soprano in a thick limerick accent. This is you and me.
again to George, Kat and Diva. I also want to say a huge thank you to all of our guests from season four and our ever-growing audience who helped make this our biggest season to date. Unibet Poker have greenlit us for a fifth season, so we'll be back in your airwaves in February when the Unibet Open Tour makes its way to the Vic in London for what promises to be a huge event. Finally, a big thank you from Dara and I to the behind-the-scenes people without whom this show would not be possible, David Pomeroy, Robin Van den Heuvel, Simon Steedman, our one-man art department, Willie Elliott, and our fantastic editor, Tom Stanton. Until next season, from Dara, Ian, and myself, good night and good luck. (laughs) 